Morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada, and today is March seventeenth, two thousand and twenty-one, which is St. Patrick's Day, a day of celebration for the Irish. So, happy St. Patrick's Day to anybody and everybody, and those who want to ride off the coattails to have just a, another international day of celebration. Um, we have St. Patrick's Day. We have all other kind, all other days of international celebration as well. We have International Women's Day. Uh, we have a number of holidays, and it occurs to me that you know, given the importance of LSAT in people's lives and the way that it takes over and consumes people's lives, that maybe we ought to, in fact, have an international day of celebration of the LSAT as well. And to discuss that, I'm joined once again with. Keith Siska in Texas and Jacob Feldman in New York. Welcome and how are you today? Good morning, John. Doing great. Thanks. I'm doing so, well. Thank you. So you would agree that you know, the way I see it, at least for certain kinds of people, if they were to write their bio autobiography, you know, starting from today, they probably write write it like this. Well, I was born. Don't remember much till I started school. I, I went to grade school. I went to middle school. I went to high school and I went to college. And then life really began when I was introduced to the LSAT. <laughs> LSAT, an important stage of life. What do you think? I, I mean, it, it, it certainly does have that period of three to 24 months of taking over people's lives and dictating the way they go about their lives. Should it be that way? Is that good for those people? That's a whole different question. Um, but uh, but you're certainly right. It, it, it does have that that sort of massive flag of uh, of being a period of life uh, in a way that that has both its uh, positives and negatives. Well, I, I mean, I think it's amazing. People can be driving down the highway, for example, and you know, it used to be they'd see a sign that said, uh, you know, last exit before gasoline or something like that. And now they look at it. Instead of the word last, they see LSAT exit. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, Keith, uh, what do you think about that? Perhaps taking it a bit too far? I, it's going to be a tough, tough for me to push back on that because I am a former scientist who taught MCAT for 10 years. And when I was introduced to the LSAT, it was the single most formative thing in my life. It was the first intellectual challenge that I couldn't accomplish easily. It intrigued me for years. I've been teaching, you know, for the past 15 years, I've been teaching LSAT. It sent me to law school. It changed the whole direction of my life. So I can't, I can't say, I can't criticize people who, who are, uh, whose lives kind of revolve around the LSAT because mine does and it has for many years. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine somebody being, you know, in a discussion after 30 years of marriage and somebody says, well, what, what was the, the most important day of your life? Was it the day that you met your spouse? And you might say, oh, God, no, it was the day I was introduced <laughs> to the LSAT. Well, my spouse would say that because that was part of our, you know, that's that's how we make our living. <laughs> yeah, there you go. LSAT at the breakfast table. <laughs> LSAT everywhere. It, take, it takes over. Look, I, I'll say this. I think there there are two ways you can look at it, right? It can be the, you know, one of those major, major days in, over the course of a life for you. But the question is not whether it becomes that, but how it becomes that, right? 
it, it can be significant, it can be formative, but what you do about it, how it, how you incorporate it into the fabric of your life is what makes the difference. And I think, you know, it's interesting when Keith talks about it as, you know, the, this major intellectual exercise that, that he, that he engaged in. I think that's a great way of looking at it and that it's not, if you think about it as a thing in and of itself for a single purpose only, and that it's not an opportunity to grow, it's not an opportunity to learn more about the way you think, then then you're you're spending so much time, and it's undeniable you're going to spend hours upon hours upon hours prepping for your LSAT if you want to get the kind of score that's going to get you to your goal. But the question is, do you spend those in a way that's a waste? that only gets you your LSAT score and then you forget about it for the rest of your life? Or are you going to spend it actually learning and growing and, and expanding the way that you think and the way that you in, incorporate new skills into your intellectual framework? And if you do that, it can be incredibly valuable. I call this test prep pedagogy. I don't want my students to shoot for a score. I want them to grow intellectually and I think the score follows naturally. Absolutely. The LSAT stage of life is the most important stage of life for future growth and potential. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. It's interesting that you put it that way, because I suppose in life, you know, very often we can't control the cards that are dealt to us. We certainly can control the way that we respond to those cards that are dealt to us. And, you know, a lot of people, I'm clearly dislike the fact they have to do the LSAT. There are a lot of people who turn the LSAT into their best friend, sometimes a permanent <laughs> friend, depending on, you know, et cetera. But it does seem to me that the way you respond to it, the way you think about it, the way you define the role that it plays in your life probably is going to have a significant uh, impact on your, on your LSAT score. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, as if you've been listening to past episodes, you've heard me say this before. And I make the analogy to math education a lot because I think math education is sort of the first barrier toward um, sort of broad-based intellectual growth for, for kids. We get to a certain point, third or fourth grade, when we start to see a divide among, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds about whether they enjoy math class and really engage in it or whether they see it as an annoyance. Um, and then they see it as, a, as a, a challenge that they can't overcome. And a lot of that has to do with the way they go about it. If they see math as a series of algorithms, these are things that we're taught to learn, do, and perform in math class, and that's all, then then they've become apes and they're simply spitting it back and maybe 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 that's not even good enough they become parrots right and they're just simply saying the words and doing the actions and getting answers but not incorporating it into the the broader um you know their broader understanding of the world well then they're throwing away their time math class becomes simply math class but if they if they piece by piece integrate it into their world and they see math not as um, as a beast in and of itself, but as a language to understand the world through, suddenly you've got something completely different. Suddenly you've got something that 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 opens up doors into everything that brings everything into focus. And I think the LSAT can be the same thing. But if you see it simply as a series of algorithms, this is what you do when you see this kind of question. These are the actions to take. And then you're done and then you've got your answer. 
and you do it with your brain off, which is what people are doing when they go through the, the those steps. They're shutting their brains off and they're letting keywords and 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 um and the repetition of question types dictate their actions instead of using their their uh, intellectual skill sets and to, instead of using deductive reasoning and really engaging with the material honestly then then all they're doing is throwing away their time they're throwing away their study time and they might get their score but they're going to get their score for all the wrong reasons and they'll they'll never have benefited benefited from all that time they put in mm -hmm. well i think you know as always, you make some very interesting points. Uh, and by the way, uh, my view of this, I think I've said this before in relation to the math, is that I think that math is the number one universal language of life. It is the international language, you know, period. And I think that but it's one of the greatest tragedies uh, in, the, in the public education system, at least my experience of it, which is definitely not as embedded as your experience, but my experience of it is that don't strive to put the best teachers in the formative years, uh, you know, where all of this can make a difference. But when I listen to you talk about the math, right, and the problems that people have and how they respond to the math as a series of algorithms or, you know, a whole bunch of things that they memorize, right, I think I agree that's garbage. I mean, my view of this is that you're much better off learning two or three things that work all the time rather than a bunch of things. I think there's a direct analogy to ELSA that we've certainly talked about time and time is this whole endless categorization of question types, which is really a way of dividing the test instead of looking at how all these questions are the same, which is the skill development, I think, to be able to manage a lot. Uh, really, I think all of the question types. Well, let's bring Keith into this here. He's a science background, former MCAT teacher. And that, what's your view of this? I, I agree that synthesis is the, the way to go. When I first started, you know, when I was first introduced to the LSAT, I had never prepped for it. And I was already a very high scorer because of the lifestyle that I had lived. I was a, a strong reader and had engaged in a lot of activities that built the, the LSAT skills. And when I started teaching for one of the major companies, I picked up all the, you know, all of the distinctions that they were making. And when I left that company, it literally took years to shed myself of those contrivances. I had to, I had to reimagine my whole philosophy of test prep to to figure out that that wasn't the right way to go. Or the right way for everybody. Well, now you say another fascinating thing. You suggest to me that there are some people who are literally born into LSAT perfection. <laughs> literally born into it as a matter of life circumstances. Why don't we talk about that? What is the perfect LSAT prep world for a baby to be born into? Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I read I read something recently, a, um, a post by one of the members of, of the group, the LSAT group, and it was about how liberal arts degrees are not particularly rigorous and don't really prep you for the um, for the critical reading that you have to do on the LSAT. And as controversial as it was, it, it really resonated with me that my science students are, are so much more prepared than a lot of the, the liberal arts majors. 
I, I will say, though, I think that there's a balance, right? There's a very important balance. I've always said to my LSAT students that, that for the most part, people walk into the LSAT reasonably strong at one or two of the sections, but there's always one that's their bugaboo. There's always one that people struggle with uh, relative to the other two. Um, for me, you know, I was like Keith. I walked into the LSAT being, you know, ready to go and ready to score high. Um, logic games were part of my youth, and and I had been teaching reading comp for ages. But LR needed some work because I had never thought in the in, in in those terms. And LR is, you know, I would say at least half the time is the one that people struggle with logical reasoning. But you know, everybody's got one. I think honestly, if there were the perfect LSAT student, the person who had the background necessary to have them sit down and be a master, it would be somebody who not only had experience in taking standardized testing, but likely had experience teaching standardized testing. Because until you understand what it takes to sit for two hours, two and a half hours, depending on the, the length of your LSAT, whether you're doing flex or regular, um, until you understand what that means and what it means to be flexible in those ways, not just understand the material, but understand what it takes to employ the skill sets and and perform at a at an incredibly high standard. I mean, it's like saying who is the perfect person to walk in and win Wimbledon, right? That person is a world-class tennis player already. And to be a world-class tennis player, you need years and years and years of experience. So until you have that, you, you're going to have things to learn, even if the material's easy for you. There's still things to learn. Well, the, well there's, all, there's always things to learn. And, you know, for the people who are willing to embrace the LSAT preparation stage of their life as a time and process they can use to improve their overall life skills, uh, I think that can be great. But, of course, most people just want and understandably so, you know, just want a high LSAT score. But let's talk a little bit about LSAT scores. Um, you know, I, of course, I see this now at this stage of my life far differently from what I did, I suppose, when I was trying to go to law school. But, you know, in my life, I have met probably tens, probably 100,000 people who've done the LSAT, probably. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I probably heard conservatively 25, 30,000 people chattering about their LSAT scores. And I've heard a whole range of LSAT scores. In fact, you know, I was uh, doing podcasts with various LSAT tutors a year or two ago, and I, I think I interviewed a couple 180 scores and, you know, and somewhere in the 170s and, you know, and this sort of stuff. But one of the things I find interesting is how when somebody gets a 180, because though, their special carbon life form, presumptively not only deserving of respect, but total worship, maybe even obedience. <laughs> Would you agree with that? I mean, that certainly is the culture. I don't think it warrants that. Oh, no, I, I, I for the record, <laughs> I don't think it warrants that. Okay. No um, yeah, I no, do I think it's the culture because, you know, and I, as I, you know, from time to time, I, you know, I read the theater going on in the, in the, uh, the what do you call it, the Facebook group. Uh, you know, once somebody, you know, when, when somebody says they scored a 180, it's, there's this interesting, you know, half the people, it's innocent respect. Half the people, they don't believe it. 
you know, this sort of stuff. But what's the difference between a 180 and a 179, for example? Like, what is the actual difference? No, good, no difference. A good guess. Yeah. I mean, even the, the test makers acknowledge that there's a, you know, a range of error in the in the scoring and the schools don't seem to appreciate that. They're willing to parse one, you know, one number difference as being meaningful when it's not. Yeah, yeah I, I don't see any I don't see any difference personally. Uh, I also don't. Um, I mean, this is just a, a thought on my part and it's not uh, be interpreted as anything more than a thought on my part. I don't think that 180 LSAT scores are better LSAT tutors than 170 LSAT scores, you know, necessarily. You there know, might be, there might be a correlation, right? But but certainly that there's no guarantee there. I, I yeah. think good teachers are good teachers, right? There, there there's 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 great work on this front. What makes a good teacher? A good teacher makes a good teacher. There are no resume indicators that can that can tell you what whether or not a person is going to be a good teacher until you stick them in the classroom and find out if they're good at it. But so, let's say, let's say, Jake, that somebody is born into this world and says, I want to be a teacher. That's what I want to do. I'm, that's what gives me meaning. I want to be a teacher. What do you think the most important characteristic would be for that person to have to be a good teacher? Listening. Yeah. They have to be great listeners. And they have to they have to they have to love the the so there's one other piece to it. They have to love the successes of their students. They have to love it. And it, it has to be the driving force for them. They have to and be they actually, I think, have to love it more than the students love their success. You know, I, I may have said this on previous podcasts, but um, I observed this so many times that great teachers, great tutors always care about their students more than the students care about them for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. So we have this dynamic, you know, you do all this work, you get somebody, you know, a high score and you feel great about it. And you know, that's it. Uh, yeah. But look, I, I, I have worked for test prep companies before and I've, and, and I have worked for myself for 10 years and I've seen lots of people in this field. And I'll tell you that the, the really great teachers aren't the ones that understand the material the best. Um, on, on the highest levels, you know, people that teach math well aren't the ones that have PhDs. They might be, right? There are some PhDs out there that are good teachers. Not, really... Yeah, you're right. Not presumptively. Yeah, not at all. It, it takes me back to you know, my years, uh, you know, back in a long time ago, well into the last century. Uh, you know, I was a student at the University of Toronto. I was an economics student. The greatest teacher in the economics department uh, you know, was some guy who had a BA, you know, who just, yeah. you know, wanted to teach. And, and and to put this in context, I mean, you know, the University of Toronto is a world-class research university. I mean, it's not, you know. And and this guy, you know, I mean, his classes were just overflowing. And I actually, I will use the word privilege, you know, the privilege of taking a microeconomics class with this guy. And it was, and it's honestly, it's one of the best educational experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether he knew anything about economics or not. But yeah, a teacher has to be a, right. A good teacher has to be a good motivator. He doesn't yeah. necessarily have to convey the precise knowledge that the student acquires. Um, the thing, one of the things I learned in law school, this really surprised me. One of the mo the most important lesson I learned in law school was that a great negotiator is a great listener, not 
necessarily a great speaker. And I think one of the real problems with LSAT students is that they talk so much, they can't hear what anyone's saying. <laughs> they just want to talk all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, there's no question about that. You can see this in the comments you know, in the group. You know, sometimes there's a discussion and then somebody will come in and, you know, and give what I think is a really interesting you know, comment. You know, it will be ignored sometimes because, you know, it just doesn't fit their paradigm, you know, how they think, you know. So yeah. rigidity. You know, on the one hand, we've got we still let's say let's say start from the principle that one thing the LSAT does is brings out the insecurities in everybody. Agreed? Absolutely. You know, yes. Those who get low scores worry that low score is a stain on them for life. Those who get high scores worry maybe the high score really doesn't mean that much mm -hmm. in terms of their value in life. So no matter what, the LSAT brings out anxieties and insecurities. Would, would you agree? Varying yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So, but wouldn't you say that the first step towards moving people through treacherous path of this important, most important stage of life for people to figure out, you know, how to deal with this kind of, of insecurity. Yeah, I, and, and I would say that that starts with understanding where it fits into the broader scope of their life in this period. This can't be the only thing that they're doing for the next six to 12 months. Sorry, it has, could, you, could you repeat that? They'll never believe that. Could you say that again, just so they may, you know, just so we're clear, let, Jake? Let, let me see if I can quote myself verbatim. Excellent. It, can, it cannot be the only thing you are doing with your life for the next six to 12 months. You okay. have now to let's be pause on that for a second. Now, you use the word <laughs> only. A lot of these people are going to immediately, you know, latch on to the word only because that's an important mm -hmm. LSAT word. Keith, could you rephrase what Jake said without the word only in there to make sure we really get the message across? <laughs> yeah, do some other stuff. <laughs> oh, God, I, I like that. Have a life. I like that. <laughs> Have a life I gotta outside tell of the you, LSAT. That, yeah. that was so good. I think you might be able to be a good LSAT teacher when you grow up. <laughs> when I think about what made me a good LSAT taker, it's the fact that I played jazz for 10 years and I can improvise and I don't get wrecked when something doesn't go my way. It's the fact that I played tournament chess for years and I lost a lot of games over those years. It doesn't bother me to underperform. I'm fine with it. I'll learn. I'll get better. You, know, you look so comfortable saying that that I get the feeling that some days you'd almost rather underperform. You don't learn when you succeed. You learn when you fail. I've learned to embrace that. My yeah. failures are the only opportunities I have to grow. No, I agree I, with you 100%. I, I, I assume you think there's some validity in that even if you don't agree 100%? Oh, no, no, no. I, I agree more than 100%. Here's my <laughs> here's my math, my math brain coming out. There we go. There we go again. There is so there is so much truth to what Keith is saying here, right? That that if we see the LSAT as the goal, right? There's a goal that I'm headed toward. And that's the only thing that I'm pointed at. And I've got my blinders on, right? I'm the Clydesdale and I'm just, you know, galloping forward toward that single goal. You 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 believe that everything rests on the one day when everything is additive, right? Everything you do is going to be additive to the experience. And and you just you just have to say today is today and I'm going to learn what I learned today and tomorrow will be different. And I'm going to keep pivoting and I'm going to keep turning and I'm going to keep growing and learning. And, and those failures are going to be critical 
to my success, not on the day that I take the LSAT, but through the course of my, my professional life and my testing life and my personal life. I need all these things. Otherwise, what's the point? Look, this is totally amazing. I mean, this sounds like if we were three guys sitting in a bar, we'd be talking about our failures that we were most proud of. Yeah. I've I got a bunch of those if you want to talk about them. You know, well, I, I just... well, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, what, Keith, which of your, if you want, which of your failures in life are you absolutely most proud of? That I, I didn't go to med school. That was my goal. I, I worked really hard toward it. I had children early in life, earlier than I had planned to, and that goal didn't pan out for me. And in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I, I saw my wife cut her hand one day and fainted. I literally fainted. She's bleeding in the kitchen. I'm laying on the floor and she's having to help me up. What kind of doctor would I have been? A horrible one. <laughs> that does seem to me a bit of a barrier, at least yeah. being an emergency room physician. I mean, yeah. that was the luckiest break of my life to not not go to medical school. <laughs> Her break, you mean, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there you That's go. That's interesting. Well, well, Jake, uh, what, what failure are you proudest of? I mean, you know, I, I've got I've got two that come to mind. I have a similar one to Keith. I started my undergrad at McGill University um, in the sciences program. I was going to be pre-med and I was going to go to, to medical school as well. And I lasted I, I, I didn't fail out or anything, but I lasted one year in the sciences program and said, this isn't for me. It's just not for me. I just I don't I don't have the kind of academic rigor in my bones at 18. That's necessary. That was necessary for me to get to. Uh, to get to medical school in the way that these other students were doing. Um, but the other one, you know, as I've said before, I was a professional musician. Um, and um, as a professional musician, you know, the, the life is, is, is a huge challenge. And I, by no means was it a, a failure, but I spent 12 years working and working and, and, and um, attempting to have a real, you know, a, 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 a life that, that supported me. Um, and it didn't, it didn't happen for me in the way that I wanted it to happen. Um, but it was the best thing that could have happened to me. It allowed me access to my family. It allowed me to have the life that I have now in education. Um, and, and I couldn't be happier with the fact that I didn't become a world famous opera singer. You know, the, the, it, the truth is that it made me who I am today and that was okay. I learned so many lessons along the way about how to frame my you know, it's hard to call it a lack of success, but successes in the ways that I that that I wanted, I wasn't achieving, and that was critical to becoming, you know, who I am at forty two. Unfortunately, it makes me a little unsympathetic to my students who tell me I had a goal and didn't hit it, and I say, "Good," <laughs> and they're like, "No, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not good." But yeah. I, you know, I view those failures as our our opportunities. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that there's nothing we can do about it, right? It is what it is. Whether we achieve it or we don't, that's the life that we have today. And so it's it's not about reflecting backwards and saying, what can I do to improve the failures of yesterday, right? It's not, I mean, you can't fix yesterday. Yesterday happened. So you're you're here today with what you did and what happened. And the only thing you can do is make new decisions for tomorrow that you think are going to contribute to your happiness, to your success, um, and, and hopefully those decisions will be better and you'll get to look at them tomorrow and see if those worked out for you. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly agree with with you on all those points. I think the challenge is, uh, and of course, I wouldn't even know where to list my failures. I've, I've got so many, so um, I don't know that I'm as proud of them as as, as you are, but uh, <laughs> but in any case, um, here's the thing, right? So we're looking at uh, you know, the whole pre-law group, and you know, a lot of them are. You know, they, they haven't had enough time to fail as much as we have, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be a heck of a childhood if they'd failed that much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what if I were to offer as sort of a guideline, a suggestion for getting people through the treacherous path of the LSAT life? Adopting a principle, something like this. For every hour... I spend thinking about the LSAT. I'm going to spend an hour thinking about something else that has at least as much, if not more, meaning to me. Does that seem to you to be reasonable? Absolutely. I, I, I would say maybe even more than an hour. More than right? more than an hour. Yeah. Now, now here yeah. we have the math coming in again. Yeah. I mean two hours. Well, look, let's backwards engineer it, right? What's a reasonable amount of time to spend on the LSAT? Let's let's presume it's a year of your life, right? Are you really going to spend a year of your life thinking about the LSAT six hours a day, seven days a week? Is that I really pause you there for do? one second. Let's say that you're 20 years old. Yeah. Let's say you have no consciousness up to say, you know, the age of five years old, okay, or something like that. If we're talking one year of a life of a 20-year-old, it's really one out of 15 conscious years. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah. You know, devoted to thinking about what kind of question is this? What category of logical reasoning question is this? What's the difference between a sufficient and a necessary condition? And I don't understand my conditionals as well as I should. It's not, it's not good math. It really isn't. And it's not what makes you good at the LSAT, right? You you said it yourself uh, in a previous episode. This this test is a reading test. You've got to be a great reader, and you've got to understand what it is they're asking you. It's not only about sitting down and memorizing lists of things and absorbing the way that other people have interpreted things. I can't believe that their English professors, their history professors, their science professors are asking them simply to memorize the textbook. They're asking them to think. That's what you do in your undergraduate. You learn to think. Right. This test should be a test of thinking. You should be incorporating the things that you've learned in your undergraduate, hopefully that you've learned in your undergraduate. And if you haven't learned those things, begin to learn them now. But you have to be a full person. You can't simply be a, a, an LSAT automaton. That doesn't it doesn't work. You have to be a full person with a full life. Go get a job. Spend time with your friends. Read books. Read magazines. Go out and live your life and have this be a part of that life. You know, you know, the way you talk about that, you know, it reminds me of a little bit. Keith, and I think that's probably Keith said. Keith said you used to play chess growing up. You were a tournament chess player. Yes. Did you um, did you uh, see the movie uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I actually saw it on, on Netflix recently again. Um, being a, a Fisher fan when he won the, uh, you know, in 72 when he won the world champion, it's certain significance to me, but struck me about the guy in the movie. His name is Josh, Josh Waitkin. Was that his name? I'm not familiar with the actor. No, no, that was the name of the actual chess player. But what struck me about it was 
the end of the movie, you know, they were talking about his chess successes. And at the end, on sort of the thing at the end, they say, oh, yeah. And in addition to, you know, playing chess, he plays football, basketball, baseball. You know, making the point that, hey, you know, this guy's success, although perhaps most celebrated for his, you know, chess playing, was really the culmination of a number of different things and integrating them. Quite interesting. Yeah. You know, the analogy that I give to people is that learning the LSAT is very much like learning a foreign language. And so when they come to me with a, a plan or they ask me whether their goals are reasonable, I typically flip it on them and I say, if the goal was going to be to learn Russian and take an expert level test in Russian two months from now, would that be a reasonable goal? <laughs> would it be reasonable to spend eight hours a day studying Russian? Would it be reasonable? And, and it's usually pretty self-evident to them that none of those things are reasonable. And if they buy the analogy, then that should indicate to them that that's not a reasonable way to prep for the LSAT either. What do you yeah, think about the phrase study for the LSAT? I see this constantly. I've always been uncomfortable with study for the LSAT. Like what, what does that suggest to you if somebody is studying for the LSAT? The, 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 well, I, I, you know, I, I understand. I understand the implication, and I, and, and I think we can extend the analogy of, of Keith's language study. Right? How are you really going to learn Russian? You're not going to learn it out of a textbook. You're going to go to Moscow, and you're going to spend six months to a year living there and immersing yourself in the language, but not just the language, the culture, the idioms, all of the implications of the language that are not simply, to use my math word, algorithmic, right? It's not simply putting together phrases that are useful. That doesn't mean you speak Russian. To speak Russian is to understand not just the language and the grammar, but the culture, the literature, the history, the people. If you're going to learn the LSAT, you need to learn the culture of the LSAT, right? It's not just can you memorize these lists of terms and pieces of vocabulary and kinds of questions. You have to understand what the implications are of thinking this way all the time. So if you really want to study the LSAT, learn those things, learn them in some degree that you think is useful, but then go employ it in your life, right? Think about the way that you argue with people. Now, now, now let's be careful because we talked about the importance of having a well-rounded life and that includes sure. social life, right? <laughs> right. And if you're going to have a social life, please don't employ these things with your friends. Otherwise, you're going to have. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly would agree with that. <laughs> Easiest way to lose friends, walk in a room. I got 180 <laughs> on the LSA. <laughs> I hear. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, either of you online. In terms of the the analogy to language, I think the pen post on the group actually talks about that, doesn't it? There is there is one that does talk about it. Yeah. What, what's remember. the what's the uh, the post up there now? The pen post. Can either of you see it? I don't remember. I'd have to look. It uh, well, in any case, there is. All right. Well, this is you know has always been a fascinating conversation. Um, we will pick up more or less on this note uh, next time, which I hope will be soon. The message here in closing, I think it's important, uh, you know, I think we're sort of getting into the, or we have got, we have given individual pieces of summary of these podcasts. So why don't we do that to close this one out? Keith, what's the message people should get from this discussion today? That LSAT prep is holistic and 
and not necessarily specific. It has to be a lifestyle and it has to incorporate other interests and, you know, it, it has to be a healthy lifestyle that isn't uh, solely dedicated to, to LSAT prep. All right, Keith or Jake, sorry. Uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll build on that and say that if you are cramming for this test, you're doing it wrong. So make sure that you take your time, that you space out your work, uh, and that you are uh, seeing the process for what it is, which is the important part of this. Uh, don't set yourself a, a singular goal, but 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 incorporate the thinking and the skills into the way that you are are um, are leading your life as a whole. And I'll I'll close by building on that ever so slightly. I think that we emphasize the importance of LSAT as important being part of life. Part of life is interacting with the world around you. It is St. Patrick's Day, and I urge each and every one of you to have a green beer today. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Thanks so much, and we will pick it up next time. Thanks, Thanks John. John.